Wasn't that great? I don't even think I have to preach, do I? John is my favorite gospel, and I believe that this is my favorite story coming out of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. I love the account of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. It is a climactic sign done to prove that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. John does not use the word miracles. Uh, He uses the word signs. Simeon is the original word. Signs. They are signs. Signs of Jesus uh, who is the Messiah. So the miracle itself always pointed to a greater reality, a greater truth. John makes a summary statement after Jesus turned the water into wine in Cana. He says in John 2.11, This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. And from there, through the Gospel of John, the signs just build and multiply. And they they not only are some of them getting bigger, but they're, they're giving a different dimension of who the Messiah in fact was. And John is very careful in the seven signs that he lays out to to build it. And this is the pinnacle. This is the final sign, the greatest sign that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah until his resurrection. Jesus uh, is is in northern Galilee that we'll talk about in just a minute. But Bethany, where Lazarus and his his sisters live, is only two miles from Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you stand on the Temple Mount, you look east at the Mount of Olives. You go over the top of the Mount of Olives and it's just on the other side. As a, as a crow flies, it's, it's very close to Jerusalem. And we learn that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're siblings. We also know that they are, they're very well to do from some of the indications. As a matter of fact, one of them in the next chapter, in chapter number 12, Mary, while Jesus is at a banquet, she comes and anoints his feet with oil and wipes the oil off his feet with her hair. And the Bible says that that ointment was 300 denarii, or basically a whole year's wages for the average person. So somebody had to be very wealthy to be able to even afford a vial of ointment that is that expensive. Jesus loved his this family very much. Lazarus was very sick, the Bible tells us, and they sent a message to Jesus that said, the one whom you love is sick. And, and of course, he would have known who, who they were talking about. Obviously, they had seen him heal before. They were hoping that Jesus would hurry down and heal uh, Lazarus before he died. Now, where is Jesus during this time? Well, the Bible says in chapter number 10 that Jesus is in Bethany, which is beyond the river, and I totally forgot my laser pointer, but that's okay. But this map actually has it. If you look in the upper right-hand corner of this map, it says Bethany beyond the Jordan. If you have good eyes, you can see it. If you have bad eyes, don't admit to it. But um, but anyway, it's up there. Jesus was way up there, and Jerusalem is all the way down here. Now, by foot, that was 110 miles and a very healthy man, a very fit man, could do that in about three or four days of walking. That's how far away Jesus is. Now, why is Lazarus sick? 
well, people get sick, right? But why is Lazarus sick? Well, if you look at John 11, keep your Bibles open to John 11 because we're going to uh, keep just walking through the narrative here. It says this, this illness does not lead to death for it is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. So John, as he looks at this account or looks at this event in Jesus' life, probably 60 years after, he says that Lazarus was sick so that God can be glorified. Now, isn't that strange? That's really strange. I think it is. Is it is it possible that people now are sick for the glory of God? We're all sick with sin, aren't we? And some of us get sick and we long to be healed. And we long for Jesus to, to heal our loved ones. And for whatever reason, sometimes God is glorified in the fact that, that we are sick. Not that he glories in the sickness because that was not his original intention, but the way that we act glorifies him. And I want you to see several things from this text. And the first one is this, that sometimes God delays help because he loves people. That is is a really weird thing to look at. Look at the the next verse, verses 5 and 6. They're some of the most puzzling verses in the Gospels. Read them and let them soak in. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he rented a very fast camel and booked it down to Bethany. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's not what it says, is it? Um, That's what we would have done, didn't it? We would have been down there as fast as we possibly can. Look at what it says. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, to our modern ears, that sounds like the height of cruelty, doesn't it? God, you are going to let somebody suffer for two more days out of your choice, your friend, who you say that you love God, you're just going to let that person suffer for a couple more, a couple more days. What kind of a love is that? In our modern world, we want an absence of pain and difficulty, don't we? We want an absence of pain and difficulty for our children so we become helicopter parents. And we try to remove all obstacles from their lives, all painful experiences. We try to make things very easy. We don't want any hurt feelings. And so nowadays we give participation trophies. I got a bunch of those when I was a kid. But that's not God. God demonstrates His love by delay. After two days, Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. In other words, go two miles from Jerusalem, the center of the universe for the Jews, the very center of the place where they want to kill Jesus. It would be like living in L.A., and having a, a warrant out for your arrest in Washington, D.C. and say, hey, let's move to Manassas. Just not really smart, is it? That's what Jesus is doing here. And when the disciples voice that concern, Jesus responds. I'm, I'm not going to read the passage, but he talks about light in the day and darkness and all that. Remember, what is he trying to say with that light and darkness thing? What he's saying is, look, there's only so much time to accomplish it and the window is now. And so... If I'm going to accomplish God's will, I've got to go now. That's basically what he's saying. But now at the end of a two-day delay, Jesus says, verse number 11, look at what he says. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
He is now declaring that Lazarus is dead. After a two-day delay, he decides to take action, but Lazarus is dead. And the disciples misunderstood the metaphor of sleep. They, they look at him and they say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. So he told them plainly, verse number 15, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, let us go to him. In other words, his being absent meant that Lazarus would die. But if he had been there, because he loved Lazarus, he would have healed him while he was still ill. And But if he'd been there, the bringing of the glory to God in yet a different way would not have occurred. And this is important for us to understand. Has Jesus been healing people? The indications are, and a lot of scholars believe, that while he was in Galilee, he basically wiped out disease and demon possession. And he could do that anywhere. But he'd been doing that probably thousands of times over. And he wants to keep glorifying God. Now, we're, we're human beings. I was talking to uh, the Sunday school class this morning. I, I used to live in Hawaii. And when I, when I first moved to Hawaii and I, I drove to work, it was like I was always looking around. Oh, man, those mountains are beautiful. The, the Kolau Mountains. And, and, hey, look at this scene over here. After about three or four months, I'm tired. and I'm just looking straight ahead, not noticing the scenery whatsoever. We get used to that, don't we? Well, it would have been the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is this great healer. And immediately, first when he began to heal people, glorify God, and then what did they do? They get used to it, don't they? And so Jesus, by his delay, is showing his love. Look at verse number 16, because I believe it's a window into how we think. You want to know a window into your soul? Let's read Thomas, verse number 16. Thomas says, Let us also go that we may die with him. So they're, they're telling Jesus, Jesus, we're, we're going to go down. You're going to go down there. They're wanting to kill you. They will kill you if you get a hold of them. And Jesus said, well, yes, we've got to go down there. And Thomas is the, the fatalist. He's saying, well, let's just, let's just pack up and go with Jesus and, and we'll, we'll die with him. There's going to be an uproar. Jesus is going to die. We're going to die too. How is that like us? How is that like us? Well, I think it's like us because what we do is because we're humans, we can crowd out the sense of God's presence. And as a result, when life gets hard, we just give in to hopelessness. We, we're looking at all of our problems or we're looking down or wherever else and we always forget to look up. And we forget to remember that Jesus said that I am with you wherever you go. And there's a divine presence and because there's a divine presence, that means that there's divine help. When you're going through difficulties, do you have any sense of who is with you? Don't be hard on Thomas because he's just like you and me. He, we sometimes forget that God is with us. But I still haven't answered the question. Remember what the question was? Why did Jesus delay two days? Why did he delay two days? Well, the Bible says... Well, because I loved him, I delayed two days. But is there more to that? Now, stay with me because I think this is really fascinating. Ready? We know that the next verse says that when Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Later in verse number 29, if you look down to verse number 29, Mary says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Now, 
if Jesus had left immediately, as soon as he gotten it, according to the timeline that we see, Lazarus would have been dead two days. He would have saved Mary and Martha two days of bereavement. Two days of pain and sorrow. Two days of, of, of mourning. So why bother delaying? Why does John insist that Jesus delay as a result of his love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? And we don't understand this in the modern West. But before embalming in warm, warm climates, a body would decompose in about three days. In about three days, decomposition would start. And by four days, it's really bad. But we don't have that in a warm climate. We, we uh, have somebody die. We can have a funeral a week later. They, embal- they, they put the embalming fluid in the body and then uh, probably, I believe they refrigerate it uh, for, for a time while it's there. But um, they keep it nice and cool. They had warm climates. It's very warm in Israel, and they did not have that luxury. And so decomposition would start very quickly. Now, there was a Jewish superstition. Are you ready for this? Common. Everybody knew it. Probably most people believed it. That when a person died, their spirit would hover around the body looking for a chance to come back into that body. And once the appearance of that body changed, the spirit would leave because it's no longer the same person. In other words, once decomposition set in, that spirit would leave. There's a uh, rabbinical commentary, and it says this. I'll stick the quote up there for you. The soul hovers over the body of the deceased person for the first three days, intending to re-enter it. But as soon as it sees the appearance change, it departs. Now, what's going on here is that sometimes back in the day, somebody wasn't really dead. Sometimes uh, they're, they're faulty, and, and so maybe a day in, somebody would, would resuscitate. They weren't actually dead. We, we used to have that happen uh, more commonly. As a matter of fact, I read an account of a woman who was in England, and they were carrying her husband's casket to the tomb when somebody started knocking on it from the inside. That was, that was back before people embalmed here in the West. But um, what ended up happening in the Jewish communities is that there would be these hucksters, and they figured out ways to deceive people. And so they would have these mock resurrections from the dead, and they would do their magical incantations and that sort of thing. And it would be like... Two days after the person supposedly died, and then they would raise from the dead. But if you go four days, there is absolutely no chance that Jesus is a huckster. There's no chance that Jesus is a deceiver. He waited two more days. He guaranteed that everybody knew that Lazarus was dead. In our divine delays, we are like children so many times. So here's Jesus, and He's... He's waiting, and he's, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows he's going to bless him. But did Mary know that? Did Martha know that? They did not know. For all they knew, they're looking at their watches saying, why isn't Jesus here? Why didn't Jesus come when we... He, and then what, what do we do? What happens if, if, you, if you text somebody and they don't text you back? What do you start doing? Oh, man. Okay, you start running through your day. Did I do something to offend them? Am I the only one that does that? 
I know I'm not. <laughs> and maybe that's what they're thinking. Uh-oh. Did, did, did we do something wrong to Jesus? Why, why is he delaying? Do we do that today? Do we do that today when we're asking for God to answer a prayer and it seems like the prayer answer is not coming and it's waiting and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, is God mad at me? Did I do something wrong? Do you ever do that? I do that. So many times we're like children. We want what we want now. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 5, verse number 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because why does hope not put us to shame? Verse number 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Is that not a summary of the account that we're looking at today? Jesus' delay was producing in them a hope because He loved them. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. But let's, let's move on. God had a definite purpose in delays. But secondly, Jesus... Uh, consoles the grieving by directing attention to himself. Look at verse number 21. When he arrives, Martha greets him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, she's not she's not blaming Jesus. Sometimes it sounds like she's blaming Jesus. She's actually lamenting what could have been if Jesus had been here sooner. And then she seems to catch herself. Look at what she says next. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think that, I think that Mary is so often like us. She's, she runs out there to see Jesus and she's putting her faith and hope in Him, but at best that faith and hope is very weak. And so she says, Jesus, if you'd just come a couple days ago, this wouldn't have happened if you'd been here earlier. But even now, and she's trying to convince herself, doesn't it sound like that? But even now I know that God will answer your prayer. And I think she's, she's trying to build up her hope. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus, He consoles her with the resurrection. He says, do you believe in the resurrection? She says, of course I do. Uh, then, <clears throat> then He bends the conversation away from her grief, away from the death of her brother, and brings all the attention to Himself. Verse number 25, look at what He says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at her and he says, do you believe this? What is he doing? He is turning his attention to himself because he's the God of the universe saying, do you believe that I'm the God of the universe? Do you really believe that, Mary? He's not trying to comfort her by reminding her that there is a resurrection in the last day. He's trying to comfort her by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He is simply saying this, I am the provider of the resurrection and eternal life that apart from me, there is no resurrection and eternal life. If there was no Jesus Christ, there would be no eternal life because he is the resurrection. He is the life. Such an important thing for us to understand. You cannot have eternal life without Jesus. 
He's the only one that can provide eternal life. And so he, he asks, do you believe this? He diverts her attention away from her grief to his own transcendent claims by answering this affirmatively that then the resurrection of Lazarus becomes an acted parable of the life-giving power of Jesus. Look, look at what she says. Look at her answer. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. That's what that word is talking about. The long-awaited Messiah of, of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so when we come to console believers, there's the fact that we need to be there. Don't we? We need to listen. We need to weep with them. We need to hold their hand. We need to prepare a meal or whatever consoles. But the greatest consolation is to focus on Jesus Christ. If you've been through the death of a loved one who's a believer, you can answer with me that the greatest consolation you have is that your loved one who is a believer is now in heaven with Jesus Christ and Jesus is that resurrection, that life. Isn't that the greatest consolation? It is for me. And when, when I know somebody who died who may not believe, be a believer, I don't have that consolation at all. All I have is the hope that maybe at some point they did trust Christ as their Savior. That's the greatest consolation. So we walk in when somebody's uh, bereaved and we, we comfort them, we console them, we serve them. We do all these things and then we, we just remind them of Jesus Christ. We remind them of His resurrection power. The narrative moves forward now to Mary. Mary's in the house, full of mourners. Now, this is an interesting thing that they did. Um, they would hire people to mourn. The richer you were, the more people you hired. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of like if, if you didn't have a whole lot of money, you might get one or two. And you try to find, you know, the discount ones. But if you were rich, like they were, they brought them from Jerusalem. They brought the best of the best, the loudest, the ones with the best voices, the ones that had the best routine. And their house is full of professional mourners and mourners who were mourning with them. They were very well to do. And Mary is in that. Now, I want you to notice when he first deals, I'm sorry, um, did I say, yeah, I got it right. Martha is, is kind of alone. It's secluded. And she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What did he do? He strengthened her faith, right? Mary shows up with this cacophony of mourners. And they're mourning, and it's really loud, and there's a large crowd. And she says the very same thing. Look at verse number 32. Now, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. The conversation takes a completely different turn. Maybe if the crowd had not been there, he would have had the same conversation with her. But I don't think so, because Mary and Martha were two different individuals. And can I, can I say this to you parents, uh, particularly young parents? Your children are not the same. And the most cruel thing you can do to your children is to treat them exactly the same. Because they have different personalities, they have different needs, and you have to deal with them a different way. Each child is different. And so therefore, parents, I would just encourage you, pray, pray, pray. Lord, give me wisdom to know how to deal with this child. This child's needs, 
are a little different than that child's needs. Please, Lord, give me wisdom. Don't ever look at your child and say, why can't you be more like your brother? Just don't do that one, okay? But notice how Jesus dealt with her. The conversation takes a different turn. Verse number 33. This is a a very important verse I want to really focus on. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come to her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What? I got to be very careful. The translation here is tragic, and every English version but one does not do this verse justice. Look at that little phrase, deeply moved. You know what that word means? When we think deeply moved, we think of a, like a deeply moving symphony or a deeply moving movie where the emotions are moved. This literally means he was outraged. Jesus was angry. The, the, the word is used to characterize a horse when it snorts. When it's, it's, he was snorting. He was so angry. Jesus was livid. He was angry when he looked and he saw her weeping and saw the Jews also coming weeping. Why did Jesus weep? Let's deal with that first. Next verse says that he wept. Why did Jesus weep? Well, it's not because he was powerless. It's not because he missed Lazarus. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. If you were crying when your friend died and you know, knew in the next ten minutes you were going to raise him from the dead, why would you have tears? He's looking over a crowd of people weeping and warning, wailing, mourning, in the, and deeply troubled. And he knew that they were absolutely powerless against death. And he was mourning with them over the fact that they were powerless over death. It was, it was a move of compassion, wasn't it? He was, he was compassionate. But why is Jesus outraged? Why is he so angry? He's angry because death itself. Death is ugly. It generates endless and incalculable anguish. It's the mark of sin. Death is merciless. We are sinners and we will die. Every time there's death, it hurts. It's painful and it's ugly and it's still the result of sin. And Jesus is outraged because this is not the way it was intended in the first place, was it? God didn't create death. God created the Garden of Eden. He, he created life. He's the author of life. And, and so he's outraged by the, by death that is called forth by the loss, by the sin that lies behind it, by the unbelief that characterizes everybody's response to it. And so with Jesus, there's outrage and there's also grief all at the same time. He's outraged by the whole thing. Now we somehow, as Christians, have adopted this stance towards death that, that says that, that death is almost a blessing. And we're not allowed to cry anymore. Have you, have you noticed that? How it's changed over the years? It's almost like a celebration. We're to celebrate. We're not to mourn. That's not biblical. We are called to mourn death 
Because death is an anomaly. Death was not God's intention. We mourn death. Yes, we celebrate the life of the person who lived. But we, we mourn death. Think about this. If, if Jesus was outraged by death, shouldn't we be outraged by death as well? We, we don't think about it that much because death is always in front of us. Our death, our impending mortality is always on our minds. We, we just, we live literally in a culture of death. We're so soaked in it. Jesus created a culture of life. He's in heaven where there's life. And so death ought to be this, this outrage. Outrage and tears. Think about this. Tears without outrage quickly degenerates into sentimentality. Outrage without tears hardens into arrogance and bad temper and unbelief. And Jesus displays both, and it's appropriate for us to display both as well. Let's move to verse number 38. I want to show you something. Here's that word again. Then Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was laying against it. Get the picture. Jesus is outraged when he looks and he sees all the mourning going on because of the death. And he moves to the tomb and he's outraged when he sees the tomb. That's the very sign of what's not supposed to be the tomb. It's not supposed to be that way. God created life, the Garden of Eden, as I said before. And here he is. He's staring with outrage at that sign. Can you get the picture? Can you, can you imagine the God of the universe angry with death? As a matter of fact, we know that death is the enemy. And the Bible says that the last enemy to be conquered is what? Is death. Jesus is viewing that as the enemy. Verse number 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time... There will be an odor for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you if you believed you will see the glory of God? And so here's Martha once again. Now remember just a few minutes earlier, what did he tell her? He went through everything. Do you believe that I am the resurrection of life? And he, she says yes. And then they go to where she can actually act upon what she says she believes and what does she do? There's an odor. She's not thinking transcendently is she isn't she like us we can sit right here in this auditorium today and say i believe that jesus died for my sins i believe that jesus forgives my sin i believe that he gives me the power over sin and we walk out and we act like we don't believe any of it she's no different than any of us is she but notice that jesus didn't get angry with her did he no jesus constantly is gently reminding her of who he is. If you believed, you would see the glory of God. And she's vacillating between weak faith and constantly having to be reminded of who Jesus is. And that's why it is so important for you to get connected to a church. That's why it's so important for you to get connected to other believers because these are the people that tell us who Jesus is at critical times, isn't it? They strengthen our faith. I'll tell you what. I don't know what I would do without the church. There have been so many times in my life where, where life has gotten difficult and my, weak, my faith has weakened and I've had a dear brother come and strengthen my faith in the Word of God. Church is so important. Uh, getting together 
And fellowshipping is so important. Well, they took away the stone and Jesus called out to him. He said, Lazarus, come out. Verse number 43. Somebody, of course, you've heard the old joke. You know, it's a good thing that he named Lazarus. Otherwise, everybody in the area would have come out of their tombs if he just said, come out. But uh, Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out bound in strips. I want you to notice something about the text. This is so fascinating. Look at the text again. Where is the focus? And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out. And then he started telling stories about the afterlife. And he, he got a book deal and wrote a book. Is that what the text says? Quite literally, the, the John is so focused on Jesus. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And John doesn't even name him. He says, the man who was dead came out. Isn't that an interesting He's, he's literally saying, look, in this parable, it's not Lazarus that's important. It's Jesus Christ that's important. He fades into the background. This narrative shows us God's sovereignty over death and His ability to reverse it. Yet, it's more than just a display of irresistible power. Jesus is our sovereign God who's so utterly powerful, so amazingly surprising, is personally engaged in the redemption of His broken and rebellious image bearer. And the, la- the resurrection of Lazarus, as I close, is a parable of what is to come. It's the final, most definite sign of who Jesus Christ really is. I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm going to give one last sign, and it's the greatest of all the signs of who I am. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and in about a week, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back three days later, and I'm going to conquer death. What do you think that did for Mary and Martha and Lazarus? What? How do you think that, that repeated? Do you think that that knowing all his predictions, that three days after he died, that they were sitting around the tomb going, hmm, I wonder when he's going to come back. No. No, they weren't. They had to be reminded once again that I am the resurrection and the life. The reaction of the people is something that we need to see in order to treat this properly. Uh, we, we have people all the... I hear people all the time say, you know what, if I could just prove... The creation is true that Noah created the ark. These people get saved. You know, if, if, if I could just, if Jesus could just come in a vision, I know that my loved one will get saved. You ever hear people say that? I, oh man, if people could just see this vision or see that or this thing, or if I could just prove to them this, can I tell you something? That there is a parable that was told by Jesus. And, it, well, parable, I, I think is a parable. I'm going to go with parable. Don't be offended if you disagree with me. And it's called the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that one? And Jesus is telling the story. Let's call it a story. How's that? Jesus is telling the story. And <laughs> Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is in hell and torment. And the rich man is talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, 
Send Lazarus back so that my brothers will get saved. What does Abraham say to him? He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And Jesus told that story sometime earlier. Do you know it's exactly what happened in John 11? Look at look in John 11. It's exactly what he said would happen. Look at verses number 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some believed, the others did, and they went to the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders, did they know scriptures better than anybody else? They did. They, they knew the signs that Jesus performed were messianic. Did they repent and believe? Now, look at verse number 40, or 53. What does it say? So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Their witness of Jesus raising someone from the dead was not accompanied by belief. Therefore, they were condemned. And they show their primary concern was not spiritual, but temporal and earthly. Look at verse number 48. Because they believed that they could lose, they could lose Jesus, they could gain a favor with the Romans. They said, if we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will t- come and take away both our place and our nation. Sadly, your faith is only as firm as the object you had it in. The religious leaders, they put their faith in good relations with the Roman Empire. How'd that work out for them? Forty years later, AD 70, Titus came with the Roman army and leveled the place, and they lost their temple. They lost everything that they worked for in this world. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, and the others who believed, their faith was firm. They had their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this parable or this story is such an interesting story because of this. And I'm going to close. Where is your faith? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that He has the power over sin and death? Do you believe that He's a resurrection and a life? Are you depending upon Jesus? Trusting Jesus' work to get you to heaven? To overcome death? Are you working, are you depending upon maybe your good works? Or your money? Or any number of things that people depend on. Maybe the government. Boy, Lord help you if you are. Who are you depending on in your life? Jesus sometimes delays answers of prayer because He loves us. The best way to console somebody grieving is with the person work of Jesus Christ. And realize that Jesus is outraged about death and yet compassionate at the same time. And one day, if you believe in Jesus Christ, death will only be a distant memory. Amen? Lord, we thank You for this parable. As we move into the the Easter season, the resurrection, the, uh, the crucifixion, Lord, and the events around the Passion, I pray that uh, you'll help us to set our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. I pray that, uh, that we will put our faith wholly in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There may be some here who do not believe 
Jesus. They're not trusting Him for their salvation. I pray that today will be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.